0: settled down. Whoa, volume. Settled down pretty quickly this morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for January thirteenth, twenty 2012,
1: 2016.
0: <laughs> Where the 12 came from. The code is SRL2. So technological housekeeping, perhaps we can take the Audience response keypads and send them down the row for those who have not received them yet. So take one and pass them along. And after you've gotten your CME code of SRL2 entered, a reminder out of respect for our speakers to um, keep your laptops closed and um, your device use to a minimum. Yes. Yes. Need some more of those audience response. Leave one for me. Good, thank you. Okay, good. And actually many of you know that if you use the app, if you're making presentations. If you're making presentations, you can actually use your smartphone for some of these audience responses as well if you ever do that in presentations. But after we put these away, I want to catch us up and um, some kudos, I want to share a letter I received December 28th, or sent on December 28th. Uh, dear Dr. Lana, I was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and had surgery at DHMC on December 17th, 2015. I immediately felt the anxiety and stress, especially because of Christmas. My first thought was to the children that had to spend the holiday in the hospital. I called Amy Marsh in our, in our Child Life office and I asked if I could make a donation of gifts to Chad. And I really wanted my daughters to experience the feeling of giving. But due to privacy regulations, she told me my daughters were not allowed to go into Chad rooms, but donations could be left in the snow pile room my daughters left our donations on december seventeenth in the snow pile room it was a very rewarding experience for my daughters we hope to make this a yearly tradition my nineteen year old is very interested in volunteering working at chad in some capacity, so I don't know if anyone heard about. It. I didn't get a chance in December to mention this snow pile room. But next year, when we open the snow pile room, which is which is of course among many things uh, 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 experiences that improve all of our lives here at Chad, thanks to our child life team, um, you have to visit it. It's in the old um, uniform shop, or it was in the old uniform shop, and it was. Um, it put Toys R Us to shame in terms of the, the selection of toys that were there for our patients and families to select from without having to use the credit card on the way out. So so it's timely, and, and uh, thanks again to our Child Life team for making it meaningful for families, non-patients, children of patients. So it's, it's appropriate that our presenters this morning for Grand Rounds are from our, our Child Life team, and I will have the... Um, privilege of introducing our two speakers. Abigail J. Horton uh, is um, actually going to be the second speaker, so I'll introduce. Mm -hmm. Sorry, no, Abigail, you're first. So So Abigail um, received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology summa cum laude from the University of New Hampshire and um, worked as a child life specialist in the inpatient units at Duke Children's Hospital in North Carolina before joining us here just in 2014, and Susan Taylor is a master's in child life, which she earned in New York in 2012, doing significant work at Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, uh, also before joining us uh, here in 2012, and that's where the 2012 came from, after receiving a Bachelor of Arts in Human Development with honors also at Connecticut College, so um, they're going to present an important thing for us in near and dear to our heart, psychosocial risk assessment in pediatrics.
2: Okay. Thank you all for coming to attend our presentation today. Um, as Dr. Loud mentioned, we are here to talk about okay. We're here to talk about psychosocial risk assessment in pediatrics, which we will refer to as PRAP, which is a validated pediatric screening tool. It's a tool that is utilized to categorize priority patients from a psychosocial perspective and to guide intervention goals, specifically in child life. Um, and as mentioned, part of the presentation will be interactive to keep everybody awake this morning. So for anybody who came in um, most recently, just be sure to grab a clicker that are the end at the end of the rows. We don't have any disclosures. <laughs> We have three learning objectives for today. The first is to identify empirical data to support the variables used for a psychosocial risk assessment in pediatrics. The second is to learn how PRAP is implemented in patient and family-centered care. And finally, to recognize how PRAP scores can be utilized to influence interventions and clinical decision-making within a multidisciplinary team.
3: So um, as we discussed, the acronym PRAP stands for Psychosocial Risk Assessment in Pediatrics. It was developed at Cincinnati Children's Hospital by two child life specialists by the names of Gail Clayman and Jennifer Stave. It's to be used with children ages 3 to 21 and is not allowed to be used with children who are sedated. PRAP is a screening tool that assesses a patient's level of vulnerability to experiencing negative psychological distress for the healthcare encounter. PRAP is also based on the assertion that children experiencing even minor procedures can experience intensified stress and anxiety. The tool uses a list of eight variables to provide an overall risk score. And the variables that are assessed in PRAP were selected from risk factors identified in previous studies and from risk factors suggested by a committee of subject matter experts, including child life specialists, psychologists, and physicians. So, PRAP was first published in the Journal of Child Healthcare in 2014. Uh, In the study, the researchers created a cross-sectional observational study with 200 pediatric patients undergoing procedures. The age of those patients were 2 to 21, and the study was done at Cincinnati Children's. The procedures included things like dental exams, surgery inductions, and blood work. The researchers observed the patient's distress during procedures and related and rated these patients using the children's emotional manifestation scale, which we will explain in the next slide. So as part of this study, the researchers also obtained parent and healthcare staff ratings of the child's level of distress and cooperation during the procedures. They concluded that the developmental age of the patient rather than the chronological age associated highest with the PRAP and SEM scores during healthcare procedures. And they also included that PRAP is the only validated and reliable tool that allows child life specialists to quantify the psychosocial vulnerability of pediatric patients. All right. So as uh,
2: mentioned, the PRAP observational study utilized um, the Children's Emotional Manifestation Scale, which is pictured here, to identify patient stress. This was a study that was published in 2004 in the Journal of Clinical Nursing. And the purpose of this study, and inevitably this scale, was to create a valid and reliable instrument to document the manifestation of children's emotions towards stressful healthcare encounters. Um, this is necessary um, for the successful evaluation of the effectiveness of pre-procedural interventions. So this means any psychosocial intervention that would take place prior to a potentially stressful encounter, such as and anesthesia induction for surgery. This was a cross-sectional study as well of 82 children uh, who were in day surgery with a panel of nurse experts utilized to review the findings and develop the scale that you see here. The scale captures emotional, uh, excuse, excuse me, observable emotional behaviors with different intensities. So a child would score from a one to a five. And as you can see on the scale, um, a child would score one if they could be described as calm, interacting verbally, and um, an active participant in the healthcare experience. And that goes all the way over to a score of five for a child who's extremely agitated, very strongly verbally protesting, and displaying disruptive behavior throughout the experience. This scale is exclusively observation based, which is necessary in pediatrics. Questionnaires and self-reporting are often more common forms of information gathering but these can be inaccurate when working with children due to social pressures that children may face or defensiveness in answering the questions. Additionally, self-reporting and particularly questionnaires assume the ability of an individual to respond verbally to a tool And that does not take into account the verbal skill development of young children or children with special needs. Observation also works particularly well in pediatrics because children disguise their feelings far less effectively than adults do. Um, So in that way, their uh, emotional responses are much more easily observable than it would be for you or I. This study demonstrated that naturalistic observation is, in fact, the most direct way to assess behavior in children in healthcare settings. And the PRAP score, which we will be describing and breaking down shortly, correlates very strongly with the scoring on the scale
3: pictured here. So, traditionally in child life, um, we've used the model that's up above on the board. This model includes things like healthcare variables, family variables, and child variables. So, healthcare variables can include things like diagnosis, anticipated treatment and procedures, physical responses to illness, injury, and treatment, previous healthcare experiences, number, personalities, and values of healthcare professionals involved. The child variables can include things like chronological and developmental age related to vulnerability, mobility, responses to previous separations from home and family, responses to current and previous healthcare experiences, ability to communicate and fun- function independently, understanding fears and concerns, coping styles and resources, cultural value beliefs, and other life stress. Family variables can include things like availability to child during hospital stay, Support systems and resources, other family needs and commitments, cultural beliefs and values, anxiety level and emotional status, social and family status, other life stresses, responses to current and previous healthcare experiences, understanding of child's healthcare situation, awareness of child's needs and concerns, ability and opportunities to communicate with healthcare providers. So by combining an evaluation of all these variables, the child life specialist would then assign each child as high priority, moderate priority, or low priority. The child life specialist would then draw on knowledge of child development, family system functioning, and healthcare stressors to assign each child the rating. So the child life specialist most likely would spend the most time with the patients who are assigned the highest priority. Their stress potential is continuously assessed and reassessed in the model and may be modified as changes occur within the individual's healthcare encounter and/or his or her response to it. Reassessment may also occur when additional information about the child and family is learned.
2: So for the purposes of this discussion, we will define psychosocial risk as the ability or inability to adapt and cope with the stressors of healthcare. When the PRAP study was being conducted, the researchers looked for the variables that most consistently correlate with psychosocial risk in the healthcare setting. And surprisingly, through that process, the factors that were previously thought to be most strongly correlated with risk were actually found to not be supported in the literature. So some examples of this are pictured here. It was initially thought that younger children were at increased risk when compared to older children. Um, that those facing chronic illness were at heightened risk compared to acute, the role of the, a previous hospital stay and a patient's ability to cope, that a longer admission meant a higher risk, and finally that a stay in the PICU was uh, a higher risk than staying in a traditional medical unit. And much of this shift actually has to do with the evolution of healthcare itself, Um, Because fewer children are hospitalized today, and many are seen and managed in the outpatient setting, some of these things don't come into play as strongly as they did before. And additionally, the children who are admitted today are more seriously ill than they may have been in the past. So in thinking about psychosocial risk, we know that stress and anxiety are a part of normal development and can be healthy in the process of growing up. We also know that stress is experienced by children from a very early age, and it can manifest in very recognizable ways in the hospital setting. There are certain common stressors that we look for that can be experienced by different age (coughs) groups. So in infancy, we often see separation from caregivers and stranger anxiety as prevalent stressors. During early childhood, we often see fears surrounding injury, pain, and restriction, and additionally, frightening fantasies surrounding experiences that children face. During school age, this transitions to concrete fears that focus on illness, death, and pain. And then for adolescents, understandably, there are the social fears that are connected to any status change that might occur. Uh, There are an increase in body image concerns and the separation from peers that takes place when children are admitted to the hospital. In normal development, children learn to self-regulate and refine their emotional responses to stressors, but some children are more effective at this emotional regulation than others. So there are certain factors that have been found to correlate most strongly with a child's anxiety uh, and or his or her capacity to self-regulate that anxiety, and that in turn would influence a child's overall psychosocial risk in the hospital. And these factors can come from a variety of different sources. They can be individual, environmental, and also relationship-based within the family system. So the literature review that was conducted for the purposes of PrEP identified eight key variables that most reliably correlate with a child's risk of experiencing negative psychosocial outcomes based on their experiences in the hospital, which we'll be getting into in just a moment. And with an understanding of each of those variables independently, along with a way to combine them together to look at a child's overall risk, we can then complete an accurate assessment of that patient's psychosocial need. Additionally, when we're able to pre-identify at-risk patients, we can better tailor our interventions to reduce distress, which in turn can improve the quality of the patient and
3: family's experience overall in the medical setting. So now we're going to break down the eight variables that are included in PRAP. Each of these eight variables are scored on a zero to three scale. The lower the score, the lower the patient risk, so um, zero being the lowest, three being the highest. So the first variable we're going to talk about is communication. It's important to consider that uh, communication is typical for the child's developmental age. Is it functional and is it limited to only select individuals? So to score zero points in this category, the child would have to exhibit functional communication skills for their age and express their wants and their needs clearly. So an example of this would be a three-year-old patient who can speak and expresses her wants and needs to you in developmentally appropriate language. To gain one point in this category, the patient would show some communication limitations for their age. They'll show a functionality of communication that may be limited to select individuals. So this potentially could be a patient who shows a language delay and only potentially the parents or caregivers can understand certain words that they're verbalizing. To earn two points in this category, the patient would exhibit limited communication skills for their age, difficulty in expressing wants and needs clearly. So an example of this would be a patient with um, some verbal skills that are difficult to understand their wants and their needs clearly. To earn three points in this category, the child would exhibit little to no communication skills for their age, and they're unable to express their wants and their needs. So this could be a patient who is nonverbal or has very um, limited verbal abilities, and without a primary caregiver present, most likely the staff caring for this patient would not be able to understand the patient's wants and needs. The next variable we'll talk about is anxiety and coping. It's important to consider whether the anxiety that's displayed is state or trait anxiety. State anxiety results from a specific situation. So an example of this would be a patient who's anxious during a dental appointment. Trait anxiety uh, affects a patient globally and is thought to remain relatively stable across environments. So this is a patient who is anxious in most settings and situations. It's also important to consider um, if their coping skills were effective in the past. So avoidance skills are Avoiding coping skills are generally thought to be less effective than information-seeking strategies and um, Does the patient utilize new suggestions for coping strategies? So to earn zero points in this category The patient would have to show little to no anxiety and is comfortable and trusting and able to cope effectively so an example of this would be potentially a patient with a chronic illness who often copes uh, quite well in the hospital and during procedures To earn one point in this category, the patient would exhibit some situational anxiety but can cope with support. So this could be a patient who copes well overall but needs a little extra psychosocial support during certain procedures or interactions. To earn two points in this category, the patient would exhibit exhibit moderate anxiety, making it difficult to cooperate and cope. So this could be a child that's slightly more anxious and requires uh, significantly more support throughout their hospitalization or procedure experiences to keep them from quickly escalating. And finally, to earn three points, the child is unable to cooperate or use coping strategies. They're not easily calmed afterwards and or show global anxiety traits. So this could be a child who screams and cannot be consoled during procedures or hospitalizations, and they're often off the charts as far as their anxiety is concerned. Uh, the next variable we'll talk about is parent or caregiver stress. It's important to consider how parents are rating their own stress. So a part of prep is to use a list of questions um, that help parents self-rate their own stress. So, um, you know, you could have them rate their stress from one to five, one being the lowest, five being the highest. And it's important to consider if they're utilizing coping strategies and to consider whether the different caregivers, if there's more than one present, how they cope. And one should assess the caregiver that demonstrates the most influence on the child's ability to cope. It's also important to consider that the primary caregiver or the caregiver that assists the most in coping may not be the parent. So to earn zero points in this category, this would mean that the parents or caregivers interact positively with the patient, family, or staff, and demonstrate strong coping skills. To earn one point in this category, the caregiver shows signs of stress but responds to support and or utilizes coping strategies. To earn two points in this category, parental stress or caregiver stress is evident, and it's limited response to support and limited use of coping strategies. To earn three points, the parent or caregiver shows high levels of stress and or is not responsive to support and is unable to utilize coping strategies. So now we're going to segue a little bit into the participation part of the presentation. So um, Susan and I are going to put a scenario up on the board that I'll read to you. Um, And we'd like you to score for this variable, the parental caregiver stress variable, in just a moment. So you meet a three-year-old who has a new diagnosis of ALL who's here with her mother and her grandmother. You meet them in the playroom where the patient is happily playing on the floor. The patient's mother is sitting in a chair, wringing her hands, and smiles nervously at you as you're speaking to her. The mother identifies outside supports that she has been utilizing and expresses to you how she has been coping by taking breaks every now and again. So, um, as you're scoring, it's important to keep in mind that you have to submit A through D and that A correlates with zero, not one. So I'll give you some time to score.
2: Here they come.
3: Oh, my yeah. oh. oh. okay. God! Okay. OK, following it. All right. Oh, <laughs> oh. one more. OK. okay. All, All right. On. So um, what I forgot to mention earlier is that when you're scoring the PROP, sometimes there'll be a little bit of uh, variability between people who are making the scores, and the people who created PROP have said as long as the final risk assessment score is in the same category, being low, moderate, or high risk, then the score is still considered credible. So. So Susan and I would um, rank this patient at one point. The mother is clearly stressed by her child's new diagnosis, but is taking appropriate steps to cope with the stress by utilizing her outside supports, taking breaks, and getting support from her own mother. All right. So yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, so the next variable we're going to talk about is the special needs variable. It's important to consider the numerous physical, developmental, behavioral, intellectual, or psychological challenges that come with a child with special needs. However, it's important not to assume that all special needs will affect their health care experience. And only the special needs that affect adaptability to healthcare should be considered when scoring for the PrEP. So, um... For example, you meet an eight-year-old patient with Down syndrome who continually needs to come in for lab work, you might be quick to assume that because she has a special need, she'll need additional support. But you find after meeting her that she copes quite well with this procedure, and in fact, her special need does not affect her adaptability to health care. So that would be an example of that. So to earn zero points in this category, the patient would exhibit no special needs considerations. To exhibit one point, there would be some special needs that negatively affect their adaptability to health care encounters. Two points would be special needs that negatively often negatively affect their adaptability to health, the health care encounter. And three points would be the, the special needs consistently have significant negative effects on their adaptability to the healthcare encounter. So we have another scenario for you. Um, so you're meeting a 12-year-old female patient for the first time, and her mother. The patient is being admitted for an overnight video EEG, and her mother shares with you that she has sensory issues and a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, as well as some sensory integration issues. How would you score the special needs variable for this patient? Hmm. Um, Susan and I scored this patient at three points. Um, this is a great example of a patient who's coming in for a relatively what we would consider um, as healthcare professionals a non invasive procedure. However, with this child who struggles with sensory experiences, a vid- video EEG would be incredibly invasive and uh, most likely very challenging. All right,
2: halfway through the variables. Uh, The next one is temperament. This is the single variable that is thought to be stable over time and circumstances. It is the only one thought to be stable when compared to the other seven. And there's also a very strong relationship between temperament and a child's predicted responses to health care. So in this way, a child typically displays more positive responses if they can be described as more predictable more adaptable, less reactive, and easier to distract. However, in considering this, it's important to note that some children may display adaptability or be described by their parent or caregiver as adaptable in general, but only with a familiar caregiver or in certain circumstances. So in this way, it's important to consider the role of hospitalization in interrupting that adaptability. So with the introduction of a foreign environment, a procedure they haven't been through before, just a change in routine overall, that may change the child's adaptability in this setting. Asking a caregiver if they would describe their child as shy or outgoing can sometimes be informative in predicting his or her responses to experiences within this variable. So here, a patient would score zero if they would be described as even and adaptable. This would be a child who is adaptable in all settings and transitions well among different caregivers and in new situations. This child would demonstrate very predictable responses to stressors. Generally, this could just be a child that you would describe as one who sort of rolls with it no matter where they are. A child would score one for moderate adaptability or if his or her adaptability may vary in specific situations. So this would be a child who is usually described as adaptable and less reactive, but as mentioned before, not necessarily in uh, new environments. And in that setting, new stressors may arise. For two points, a child would display limited or unpredictable adaptability. So this child would often have difficulty adapting to change. And his or her responses to change may often be quite unpredictable. And there's certainly increased variability in the healthcare setting for this. Finally, three points for a child who lacks adaptability most of the time. This child uh, is at the greatest risk for psychological distress. Um, and this would be a child who sort of has consistent dysregulation, which is prevalent in and out of the hospital. Next variable is past healthcare care encounters. So children who experience negative encounter, past healthcare encounters usually exhibit increased behavioral distress during procedures in the future when compared to children who've experienced positive or even neutral past experiences. But the role of anticipatory anxiety is an important consideration here as it can further heighten negative feelings that are associated with an upcoming experience. So for example, if you're thinking about a brief, non-invasive, not a big deal outpatient appointment, a child who has anticipatory anxiety surrounding that will have a very different reaction than a child who does not have those fears at all. And anticipatory anxiety can manifest itself in an increase in overall fears. And the non-compliant, difficult behaviors that you may see with patients sometimes. It's also important to consider the frequency and degree of negative experiences. So um, as Abby mentioned before, a child who has very negative experiences when they go to dentist appointments, if that same child is admitted in the future for an appendectomy, the negative experience in the past may not actually play any role in their future one because it just has to do with the dental experience. Also, the experience is relative to the individual patient. So, in this way, one negative experience uh, among limited overall experiences. So a child who's had very little, very few encounters with the healthcare system, but has had one very negative encounter will likely score higher than a child who might have a chronic illness and has had many, many experiences in the healthcare setting, but mostly positive ones would score lower. So in this category, zero would be positive previous experiences. So this may be a child who only comes in for well child checks and even enjoys coming for doctor's appointments. A one would be a child with relatively positive experiences. So this may they may have some difficulty with certain experiences, but overall, health care is experienced by that child and family as positive. So that may be the same child who only comes for well child checks but gets really stressed out about shots. So when he or she comes in for that appointment, it can be more more challenging. Uh, for two points, the patient would have negative with some positive experiences. So for this one, a particular patient comes in to mind for me. Um, it's a 10-year-old patient with cystic fibrosis who's admitted about twice per year, copes extraordinarily well in the hospital setting, has excellent family support in place, and does very well in outpatient appointments as well. However, she often goes home with a pick line for IV antibiotics and has to come in. I see Lynn smiling in the back. Has to come in weekly for dressing changes, which is extraordinarily stressful for this patient. Um, and there's a great deal of additional anxiety that takes place during those, the dressing change itself can take upwards of one hour. So this would be a very strong negative experience among overall positive experiences, but strong enough to pop that patient into the two-point category. And finally, three points would be if the child has had a very traumatic experience and or numerous negative experiences. So this could be a child who was in a traumatic accident with an extended stay in the PICU three years ago, who is now being admitted for an asthma exacerbation. So the indication for the current admission might not lead us to believe that the patient would be at such a high level of distress, but it's important to consider the past experiences in influencing that child's ability to cope. And a child who scores at a three indicates a need for concentrated preparation and psychosocial support, in an effort to reestablish trust and sort of work to get back what has been lost in the healthcare system for that child. Okay. Second to last variable is the invasiveness of the procedure or encounter. This variable is based on the assertion that children who experience more invasive procedures typically demonstrate increased psychological distress than those who experience less invasive procedures. And we can define invasive as any encounter that might involve a needle or catheter or any other instrument that would be inserted into the body. However, when thinking about the invasiveness of the procedure, it's important to assess the experience from the individual patient and family's point of view and consider the invasiveness of that procedure in relation to the patient's unique perception. So sticking with the PIC line theme, by definition, when we talk about a PIC line, that would be considered an invasive encounter or procedure. However, for a child who has had extremely negative IV experiences in the past, is a very difficult stick, gets really stressed out with that, and has never had a PIC line, will certainly exhibit increased distress when compared to a patient who has a chronic illness and has had many pick lines and would describe that process to you as not a big deal at all and not something that stresses them out. So while the procedure in that case is the same and the invasiveness is technically the same, it must be determined on a case-by-case basis when assessing the patient. So for this category, a patient would score zero points if there was either no procedure or if the experience was not an invasive one at all for the patient. A patient would score one point if it were a mildly invasive procedure or an encounter. So an example of this could be the experience of a blood pressure cuff inflating for the first time for an extremely irritable and overtired toddler when compared to that experience for an outgoing, bright, school-aged child who's really interested in the medical experience. And that would not be an issue at all. In fact, it might be interesting to them. A child would score two points for a moderately invasive procedure or encounter. So this could potentially be a child with limited past healthcare experiences who is coming to pain-free for the first time um, and we'll be having a mask induction for anesthesia, and you know that experience involves the introduction of a lot of new staff, um, and it's a very strong sensory experience as well. So that encounter would likely be ranked at a two, and a three would be an extremely invasive procedure or encounter for the patient. Finally, the last variable in the PRAP is developmental impact. And as I described earlier with the sort of shift in risk assessment that has taken place in child life theory, there has been a movement away from age or even developmental stage as a factor that strongly influences a child's ability to cope. But there is certainly a difference between the developmental level and the developmental impact of an experience. So... A child's developmental stage can impact his or her understanding of a new diagnosis, his or her ability to cope with or even be distracted during a procedure, and just sort of a response to the medical environment overall. So it's important to consider every healthcare encounter with regard to how the experiences that are taking place within it are impacted by where a child is at developmentally. So if we're thinking about a physical exam. This is a very different experience developmentally for a toddler versus a school-aged child versus an adolescent. Um, for a, t- a toddler, it would probably affect them a bit more strongly than it would a school-aged child if that toddler still has some stranger anxiety and is just not into the whole process at all. Whereas a school-aged child who uh, copes well and has concrete understanding of what's going on, this would not their developmental level would not really play a large role in this category. Um, And then for an adolescent, it's a very different story because that adolescent might be very self-conscious and have increased concerns surrounding privacy. So that would um, play more strongly in this category. Especially, oh, um, the developmental impact variable can also help to capture outside stressors that are taking place outside of the hospital but concurrently with the experience. So this could potentially be a death in the family or a divorce that's happening during a medical experience. And especially for the child with a developmental delay or disability, it's necessary to isolate the developmental dimensions on their own. So to think about the cognitive, social, emotional, and motor development separately as it might impact a child developmentally. So, for example, a child who is recovering from an accident who has extensive physical therapy demands, if this child has a motor development delay, then it's important to consider that dimension independently as it impacts a child's coping in this category. So here, a child would score zero points if aspects of development do not impact their ability to cope. One point, aspects of development may mildly impact coping. Two points, aspects of development moderately impact coping. And three aspects of development significantly impact coping. So we have one final participation for you. Um, Here is the scenario. A three-year-old boy is admitted to the pediatric unit for the first time with pneumonia. He is placed on precautions and requires oxygen. He lives with his mother who will need to be absent during the day due to her work schedule. How would you score the developmental impact variable for this patient? with 59 here. Ah, a tie. Ah. (laughs) We would score this patient at three points. Um, There are several factors to consider when assessing developmental impact for this patient. The first is the role of the foreign environment. So as stated, this child was placed on precautions which will challenge his developmental need to assert control over his environment. And the restrictions also render him immobile and unable to explore his new surroundings. Also, the role of oxygen here could be important as the child is unable to think logically to understand the need for oxygen and may experience some fears regarding potential pain or harm. Separation is also an important theme here. Uh, As stated, the child lives with his mother, who will need to be absent during the admission. And this could lead to a potential loss of routine. This child will be surrounded by unfamiliar people in a new environment. And separation is a very key developmental theme at this stage. So in thinking about the developmental impact variable, it can also be helpful to compare this same situation with how you might score a patient with the same diagnosis and the same course of treatment But in this case, it's an outgoing 8-year-old child who spends time in a variety of different homes. That patient would likely not score a 3 in this category.
3: So um, most likely, no one will be able to read this. But uh, this is what the PRAP score sheet itself looks like that we use to score patients. As you can see, um, each variable, as we discussed, has a 0 through 3 score and each variable is isolated in an attempt to um, have the person who's assessing the variables look at each variable individually. Um, When we were going through PrEP, it's important to remember that you cannot double dip for each variable, so if you give a child a 3 for temperament, you can't use that same information when giving them a 3 for anxiety and coping. Each variable needs to be assessed individually for the PROP score to be effective. So overall, PRAP scores can help align child life services based on patient vulnerability. Um, This may help us identify new needs in areas that aren't consistently staffed and can inform changing needs in areas that we are already staffed and determine high acuity patient populations. It can also demonstrate coping trends over time, so coping associated with specific procedures or how an individual patient's coping changes over time based on the interventions that child life provides. And this is the
2: overall risk level legend. Um, The process gathers the sum of each variable for a total score. So a child would fall in a level 1 or low risk category for 0 to 7 points, level 2 or moderate for 8 to 14, and level 3 or high risk for 15 to 24. And as we are gathering information to score the patient on each of the eight variables, we are utilizing information gathered from a variety of different sources. So for variables such as special needs and developmental impact, we will likely be utilizing knowledge of child development along with stress and coping theories. But for all of the variables, it's important to note that the role of the multidisciplinary team is prominent. So while we do utilize direct communication with patients and families, of course, uh, along with observation, we also rely heavily on team input regarding assessment of individual variables. So for example, for a patient who was admitted overnight under stressful circumstances, it would be imperative to communicate with the nurse who is working with this family and who would have the most uh, important information regarding coping and anxiety upon admission. And similarly, if we're working to assess a parent and caregiver stress and coping, it would be necessary for us to confer with the social worker following this family for an accurate and thorough assessment of that variable. Our goal, when we get started with this, will be to prep each patient that we encounter. And we only reprep a patient when there is a notable change. So that could be with one individual variable or a variety of variables. But um, doesn't necessarily mean that each day or each week or each admission the score change. It may actually stay the same over a period of time. So, in thinking about what each level means in practice, uh, low risk is defined as minimal distress is experienced, patient has coping ability to manage most of the healthcare experience, and the indication is to provide general support. So, low risk doesn't necessar- necessarily mean that the patient is not a priority, it may just change the goals of the intervention. So, for example, uh, an eight-year-old patient who has a chronic illness and is admitted fairly frequently, this is a child who is generally compliant with treatment and has a supportive family, this patient would most likely fall into the low-risk category. But that does not mean that this patient does not need psychosocial care. It may just mean that her psychosocial needs are currently being met, and that contributes to her overall positive
0: coping and
2: compliance. So in this way, the goals of care can be shifted to focus on continuing the same level of care. And a low-risk score can also serve to highlight positive factors that are taking place among team members for this child and family. Moderate risk is defined as patient has coping limitations and may exhibit acute distress. The indication is to provide preparation, psychosocial support, and interventions to minimize negative psychological effects monitor closely for escalating distress. And high risk is defined as patient has persistent or escalating distress and significant coping limitations. The indication is that the patient should be a high priority for preparation, psychosocial support, and interventions. Collaborating with or consulting other disciplines is recommended. So a moderate to high risk score indicates a need to be proactive as a team to identify and carry out psychosocial interventions. It can also strongly suggest a need to collaborate as a team to reduce the child's risk score over time in the, in the case of high-risk patients. At, Cincinnati's Children, at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, the PRAF score has been utilized during multidisciplinary rounds to inform a plan of care. They have also found it useful in the creation of a common language when assessing a patient's psychosocial need, and it's our hope that this risk-level analysis can be implemented amongst the teams here at Chad.
3: So this is what um, the PREP is going to look like in our system in EDH. Our go-live date for PREP is going to be February 15th of this year. Um, the PREP score in the chart will be the final, final overall risk score. Soon after our go-live date, we hope to build in the risk legend that Susan just went over in the past slide when one ho- hovers over the actual PRAP score. And it's important to note that if a patient score is particularly high in a particular variable, the Child Life notes that we're going to be putting into the chart will reflect the significance of that score. So in summary, we hope that you all learned today that... Definition of PRAP and the rationale behind why Child Life is moving in the direction of using it Um, We hope you gained an understanding of the PRAP variables and the overall risk scores that are assigned to patients when they're being assessed And how we can all utilize a PRAP score as a multidisciplinary team Thanks
1: Thank you very much. That was a great presentation. I'm one of the outpatient docs, and I, I guess two questions. One is this uh, comparable to stuff that works in the outpatient setting, and I'll tell you my bias, so we <laughs> got my bias first, is that most of my patients would score a zero or a one or a two. Nevertheless, I have patients who are allowed to make their shots and have climbed under the table, whose parents are paying them significant amounts of money to get their standard shots. I've had two patients this year who request general anesthesia for a regular blood draw, To the point where Dr. Groff and Jessica LaCarle and I have joked that we're going to run a fifth grade class for parents that, how shall I put it kindly, says, butt up, it's just a shot. Um, So my experience is that the parental anxiety of medical procedures, even really minor ones. And my flow staff for us like agree with me on this. that the parental anxiety that comes along with these relatively minor procedures in an outpatient setting that just escalates the drama to of the levels. So and just comment the question how it do does so,
2: <laughs> so that score that patient would likely score Higher overall, if you're considering the invasiveness of the procedure, while we might not think of a shot as particularly invasive for that child, it's extraordinarily invasive, and also the patient and caregiver stress would mm-hmm. be extraordinarily high in that mm-hmm. one as well, so I think that that would, I would hope that that would work in the outpatient setting, um, and that certain certain variables would Influence
3: the overall score, right. and like Susan described earlier, you know, just because a patient might fall into a lower um, risk doesn't mean necessarily that because they've increased in a certain variable, they wouldn't necessarily be a priority because of that particular part of their care. So, so I'm wondering how this tool works when there's missing
2: variables. So you have eight. Variables. If you don't have enough information for one category or for a couple of categories, can you still use this tool? Because there are a lot of or where I could see where you would have no idea in some of those categories, but you
3: might have information in a lot of the other categories.
2: So I, th- I think that that speaks to how important it is to work as a multidisciplinary team, because we certainly wouldn't necessarily have all of the information to complete a score. But it is important to be able to take all of those pieces into consideration. So. I think the hope would be, and we're still learning as we're going, but the hope would be that for the gaps and pieces that we need to fill in, that we would be able to find the people that would have that information. Um, I think?
3: Yeah, and I mean, if you can't gain all of the pieces, it has been said in the literature for the PRAP score that you just shouldn't necessarily PRAP the patient at this time, just because you don't want to give them necessarily um, a score based on assumptions that you're making. So if you can't gain that from the rest of the multidisciplinary team, that you just wouldn't prop that patient at this time. I have a sort of straightforward question on a bigger question related to Kathy. So the straightforward question is, um, did the Cincinnati
1: group, or I don't know if it's being used in other places, to mm-hmm. look at sort of a gestalt score, like I put them in category one, two, or three, versus do the whole tool and um, to figure out what their number is and then what which of the three categories in. And see if sort of there's a correlation between um, you just going in, taking your history as you typically would, and say I think they're category two, and then sit down, fill out the whole tool, and do that. Um, so is there a relationship between those two things? Because it seems like some of the information is helpful in making a plan more so than it's helpful in like putting them in a category. And then the bigger question related to Kathy's um, sort of outpatient transition. I, someone mentioned earlier on about. Potential um, for predictive sort of can we figure out who the kids are that are likely to score high earlier, prior to okay we're going to do a procedure now, but can you sort of figure that out earlier? Um, and sort of the communication between the inpatient and outpatient mm-hmm. world. So looking at discharge planning and you know there's some interesting articles out about um, how the anxiety in the hospital and short hospital stays make work like terrible transition home and how can we use that as a transition to home or other outpatient <laughs> tools. We talked about the AC using sort of things like that to not just have it be sort of an impatient thing, but how do we communicate between the um,
3: students? Okay. So so I guess to tackle the first question, um, when PRAP was created, Um, Like Susan talked about earlier, it's sort of this shift in variables that are more um, reliable and valid as opposed to things that we've always considered in child life as Important, but not necessarily as supported in research So when they you know scored these children they found it was just kind of a new lens of looking at things So they aren't necessarily falling into the you know one two or three category versus the low risk moderate risk high risk in the same way it's more the way that you're looking at the patient so I wouldn't say that they necessarily go because the variables that you're assessing are different, um, but you're looking at it in that you're still considering You know, child life interventions are just as important for low to high risk, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you
1: want to tackle the second question.
3: Can you, sorry, can you repeat yeah. the second question? The,
1: question? the question, I sort of said some stuff too. Okay. The question is basically how to use, this is um, a tool that you're intending to implement in a specific way around sort of inpatient or procedural type of things. Kathy talked about doing it in outpatient for shots and things, Mm -hmm. but I'm wondering about the sort of continuum of care over time, discharge planning, Mm -hmm. um, thinking about um, just general care and other things in
2: the outpatient. Yeah, so we probably spoke to this more specifically in the inpatient setting, but we're actually not planning to use it exclusively in that way. Um, This is a system that we hope to use across all spaces in the hospital. Um, So that piece is certainly there, and I think The goal is to be able to gain that information in advance so that we can be thoughtful on the way that we're planning interventions so that we're being more proactive in our work instead of reactive. So, for example, that child who comes in for a shot and is hiding under the table and we're reacting to that situation, we hope that we can put systems in place so that we can have a a plan to be proactive so we don't actually get to that place.
1: That makes sense. And supporting, supporting families at home as well. For us specifically to support families at home? Just the, oh. in general, using this information to plan support for families at home. Yeah, I think that's a really good
2: good thought, and certainly something that we should be tackling as a team to, to think about more specifically. Mm-hmm. I think this is a great idea to put this in the chart. Is there some
1: way, because you're not going to be able to see all the, the kids that come through, that like Kathy could write, this kid is hiding under the table. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if, if you haven't had a chance to actually do the score on a child, be the next provider who's about to take care of this kid might be able to open that up and get some information?
2: That's a really great idea. We're still in the midst of the EDH build, so uh, I, and I don't know anything about building something into a medical record, but I think that's an excellent idea and mm-hmm. something that we can bring to, to that. Area just mm-hmm. just a yeah, free text. Free text, box. yeah. yeah I mean,
0: you yeah. just want to it, yeah. a comment field.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because it's not as easy as just one, two, or three. We want to know why there are two or why there are three.
0: Mm-hmm. So.
2: All right, one last question. <laughs> um, we've the training for doing the trap? is it, um, can anyone do this? Or is it, I mean, because you can see that what you guys picked wasn't always what the audience picked. And I assume <laughs> there's some skill building here. Has this been validated just for child life specialists to be filling in and evaluating? <laughs> so we went through a training process to use this so yes for for now that's that's the way that it is but i think that what cincinnati children's has found helpful as i mentioned before is just sort of utilizing it as a common language um but at at this point in time it's validated just for childhood specialists who have been through the training
3: i think like you're speaking to too it took time for our team like i said to kind of use this prop lens it's not the only lens that we're going to use but it's one of the most validated at this point so just sort of retraining the way that we're looking at patients um, to get more consistency in those scores so it does you know take time for that lens to be applied
2: and we have variability among our team
3: yeah
0: you